Has the like of this happened in your days or the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it and let their children tell theirs and their children the next generation. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Episode 14, The Like of This. Gidon and I were prepared for our visit to Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum. At least, we thought we were. We had collected and stapled Doris's records and looked through family photographs that Gidon kept in a cracked leather pouch. The photos smelled of age and dust. The writing on the back was in German and in Czech. Pictures of aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers and sisters, grandparents and great-grandparents, some in daguerreotypes from before the turn of the last century. Guidon's great-grandfather, who was perhaps three years old in one photo, was posed holding a Czech sword of some kind. There was one photo of Guidon in 1946 laughing in the snow, wearing his American cousin's U.S. Army cap, his cousin looking for all the world like Elvis Presley standing nearby. Guidon had been liberated from the concentration camp for only about a year when this photo was taken. The name Yad Vashem literally translates to hand and name, but is more commonly understood as monument of names, and is taken from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 5. Quote, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. End quote. The sprawling Museum Research and Education Center is located on Mount Herzl, named after the early Zionist leader Theodor Herzl, and is situated in the hilly En Karem neighborhood of Jerusalem in the southwest of the city. Yad Vashem first opened its doors in 1957 and, in 2005, about 48 years later, debuted a footprint four times larger than the original, designed by famed Israeli-Canadian architect Moshe Safdi. During his long career, Safdi, a Syrian Jew from Haifa and a gifted and prolific architect, also designed, among others, the Hebrew University, the main branch of the Salt Lake City Library, the Skirwal Cultural Center in Los Angeles, and the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. In no small part due to Safdi's design, Yad Vashem is more than a museum. It's the experience of entering a darkening maze before gradually returning to the light. The day Gidon and I went, it was 101 degrees Fahrenheit in Jerusalem. The heat wave that descended had brought with it a fine dust from North Africa, and it hung over Israel like a yellow shroud. In Israel, this is called a hamsin, an Arabic word that means 50. It is said that these dust storms strike the region about 50 times a year. They seem to come more often now, probably as another sign of climate change. This weather phenomenon is also called a sharav in Hebrew. I drove to the museum, which gave Gidon the rare opportunity to enjoy the golden fields of his country from the comfort of the air-conditioned car, rather than wrangling with traffic as he usually and expertly does. Even now at his age, Gidon added, lumbering tourist buses filled one of the several parking lots near the museum, which receives hundreds of thousands of visitors yearly. 
A long list of world leaders and presidents have visited, not to mention notables like the Dalai Lama, Pope John Paul II, Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, and film star Marlena Dietrich. In the Garden of the Righteous Among Nations, more than 26,000 non-Jews who risked their safety, freedom, and lives to help Jews during World War II are commemorated. Not an especially large space, the reading room at Yad Vashem is filled with encyclopedias, ledgers, maps, and records of names. This is but a fraction of the information to be found in the museum's database, which is available to search on the 10 or 12 computers located at the desks clustered in the center of the room. Outside, there was a sweeping view of Jerusalem, shimmering in the heat. Inside, Gidon and I happily enjoyed the air conditioning. About eight or ten other people were there. Some seemed to be American tourists, taking advantage of being in Israel to look up information about their relatives. At another desk, a whole family sat around a computer, listening to the filmed testimonial of an elderly man, who I presumed was their grandfather. The testimonial was in a language that I did not recognize, but the family seemed to understand just fine, exchanging smiles and sad looks with each other as they watched their relatives speak. The American couple stood to leave, and the librarian told them in English that she was so sorry they didn't find what they were looking for. The couple shrugged apologetically and left. The librarian sat down with an older religious couple. The man was wearing prayer fringes under his heavy overcoat. His wife was wearing modest long sleeves and also had her head covered. As Gidon and I waited our turn, we leafed through books about villages in Ukraine and browsed the names of Jews who lived in Lutz. With effort, I picked up a coffee table-sized book that had to have been four inches thick. It was a list of villages destroyed during the Holocaust. Villages under the letter A alone took up 40 pages. A whole world, gone, disappeared. The librarian, Mickey, was a young and graceful Orthodox Jew. Her head was covered modestly as she flitted efficiently from one person to another in the quiet space. Occasionally, a young girl of about six or seven with a head full of unruly, curly red hair sidled up alongside her and spoke urgently to her in hushed Hebrew. Finally, it was our turn. What country? Mickey asked. Czechoslovakia, I said, and pointed to Gidon, to Regenstadt. Mickey's demeanor changed instantly. She peered at Gidon, then said something sweet and sincere about how Gidon appeared much younger than he was. Mickey invited us to sit at a desk. The keyboard clattered away under her touch. The database at Yad Vashem is incredibly complete, but not very user-friendly, which is half the battle. In only a minute or two, Mickey had located the records of Arnost Lev, Ernst in German, Guidon's father. She clicked through several pages of documents and information written in both Czech and German. Then she stopped and looked at Guidon. Who did your father piss off? she asked. Ernst had been transported from Terezin to Auschwitz on a family transport, without his family. Something happened here, Mickey murmured as she flicked through documents. Whether Ernst was punished by being sent alone in a family transport, or whether he managed to keep Doris and Guidon off the same transport, we would never know. Ah, look at this, Mickey said. From Auschwitz he was sent to Buchenwald. No, Guidon stammered. He explained that his father was sent to Auschwitz and then died on a death march right before the end of the war in spring 1945, as far as he knew. Mickey tapped a fingernail against the computer screen where the records of Ernst, who had by then been tattooed as number B12156, blinked gloomily. He was quarantined for a time, she peered more closely, 
probably with typhus. Then he was sent on a transport to Buchenwald. Mickey clicked away. This is odd. There's no record of his arrival at Buchenwald, only his transport out of Auschwitz. Gidon sat between Mickey and me. He was uncharacteristically quiet. Mickey explained that one of the many things that make the Holocaust unique among atrocities is the care with which the perpetrators documented their own crimes. So sure were they that they would be hailed as heroes of efficiency in the annals of history. At Buchenwald, prisoners and transports were tracked meticulously. Mickey showed us documentation of ration cards, health cards, and ledgers of names of those arriving on this week or that week. She clicked back to Ernst's record. He had no card upon his arrival. I don't understand what happened, I asked. Mickey looked at me as though I had asked whether the moon was made of cheese. He must have arrived dead. The air was sucked out of the room with a wrenching yank. Gidon knew his father had died in the camps. He'd known this since 1946, but this, this detail, it was too much. Gidon closed his blue eyes and his shoulders shook. I put my arm around him asking, are you okay? Yes, he said, wiping his eyes, sort of. I took Mickey aside. I had a question that I didn't want to ask in front of Gidon. I told her that in her Yad Vashem paperwork, Gidon's mother had written that she believed that her own mother had been electrocuted in Belzec. Perhaps as a way to cope, Gidon thought this ridiculous. But I had looked at this entry over and over again. Electrocuted. A stupid rumor, Gidon had said. She didn't know what she was saying. She had no way of knowing. This was true. Doris could not have known what happened to her mother. But Mickey told me... Belzec did indeed experiment with putting people on platforms and electrocuting them. And that fact, even though Gidon's grandmother Alice actually went to Treblinka, will never leave my brain. How do you do this? I asked Mickey a few minutes later. Oh, I'll cry after you leave, she said. I don't usually cry in front of people. Suddenly, the cute, red-headed, curly-haired little girl was back. She threw her arms around her mother's waist. I'm hungry. The natives are getting restless, Mickey said with an apologetic smile. I don't know how to behave around someone who's received this kind of knowledge, I told Gidon as we made our way back to the car and readied for the hour-long drive back home. The truth was, I didn't know how to react to my own knowledge of these horrors, made so personal through Gidon. Just be yourself, Gidon reassured me as he buckled up. I wanted to put on some cheerful music or to unroll the windows and scream into the dusty yellow heat. I didn't know what to do or say. I turned to Gidon. Have you ever heard that saying that if wishes were fishes, the sea would be full? I had no idea why that came out of my mouth. But the seas are full of fishes, said Gidon. (music) 
A day later, a picture of Guidon's father, Ernst, came crashing out of the past and into our possession when a friend on social media managed to find it on an online database. The photo was taken in 1941, in or near Prague. It showed Ernst trying to apply for a visa. I stared at the photo, hoping maybe it was a mistake. The resignation and fatigue on Ernst's face were heartbreaking, and the resemblance to Guidon, uncanny. Gidon handle seeing this photograph after the news of the previous day. Gidon had not seen a photo of the father he barely remembered in years, and never at this age and stage of his life. I asked him to sit down and handed him a copy of the photo and the paperwork it came with. Gidon stared at the photo at length. Yup, he said. In three years, Ernst would no longer resemble this picture. He would be in Terezin, and then Auschwitz, emaciated and skeletal. There truly has never been anything like the Holocaust. But there have been very many acts of genocide and mass brutality akin to Nazi atrocities. Between 1914 and 1923, 1.5 million Armenians were systematically murdered by the Ottoman Empire. To this day, diplomatic battles rage about whether to term these horrible events as genocide. In Cambodia, between 1975 and 1979, Roughly 1.5 to 2 million Cambodians were murdered by the Khmer Rouge in the infamous killing fields. Between 1992 and 1995, thousands of Bosnians and Serbs were murdered in a horrific orgy of ethnic cleansing. During just a few months in 1994, 800,000 Tutsis were massacred by Hutu tribesmen. In the book A Primer for Forgetting, Lewis Hyde reminded me of an old Jewish legend. The angel of the night, Lila, places the fertilized soul of a child in the womb, and kindling a light so the soul can see the world from end to end, teaches it about the just and the wicked, those who follow the Torah and God's commandments, and those who do not. When it comes time to be born, the angel lightly strokes the child's upper lip, leaving a small indentation. Immediately, the newborn forgets all it has seen and learned and comes into the world crying. In autumn 2018, CNN conducted a poll that revealed that one-third of Europeans reported knowing little or nothing at all about the Holocaust and that one in 20 Europeans in the country surveyed had never even heard of the Holocaust. Americans didn't fare any better. A different survey found that 10% of American adults were not sure they'd ever heard of the Holocaust, rising to 20% of millennials. Half of all millennials could not name a single concentration camp, and 45% of all American adults failed to do so. There's more. In 2018, there was a 74% rise of anti-Semitic attacks in France, a 60% increase in Germany, and in the United States, according to the Anti-Defamation League, 
the number of acts targeting Jews and Jewish institutions jumped 86% in the first quarter of 2017 from the previous year. I am shocked and dismayed by these figures. Hasn't the Holocaust been represented time and time again in major books and films, such as Schindler's List, Sophie's Choice, The Pianist, and Life is Beautiful? Aren't there dozens of documentaries on Netflix about Hitler and his henchmen? What about the stacks of historical fiction about World War II available in libraries and bookstores? What is happening? Maybe in this post-everything world, the Holocaust just doesn't matter anymore. Or it might be worse. Is it possible that the past just doesn't matter anymore? What are we doing wrong? The usual suspects come to mind. Underfunded education systems, smartphones, and with them the dazzling number of ways to distract ourselves, social media and its endless feedback loop of self-centeredness, movies, those seductive machines of myth-making and happy endings reassuring us that the good guys who usually wear capes always win, and that we need not look back unless it's the prequel origin story of the hero. Is the Joker more well-known than Hitler these days? Okay, Boomer, a voice says in my head. End rant. Calm down. I do not believe it's useful to assume from these surveys that 10% of Americans, half of all American millennials, and one-third of Europeans between the ages of 18 and 34 are stupid, ignorant, lazy, or anti-Semitic. We have to be particularly careful to not further alienate millennials by accusing them of ignorance or stupidity. Not being able to name a Nazi concentration camp does not signify an endorsement of the Holocaust. Correlation versus causality is important here. Maybe we're just not asking the right questions in these surveys. I suspect that the usual collective amnesia plus a sense of despair and detachment in these sped-up times are more to blame than anything else. What percentage of Europeans or Americans know about the Uyghurs in China? or the reasons for and the details of the wars in Syria or Afghanistan. Is that not also shameful? Doesn't this willful ignorance shine a light on our all-too-human tendency to filter out that which we think does not affect us, that seems far away, long ago, or otherwise not affecting us personally? Excuses, as Thucydides did not exactly say, are an expensive commodity. It's better to be prepared. When Gidon and I visited the oddly named Ghetto Fighters Museum in northern coastal Israel, not far from Akko, we had an unsettling but instructive experience. There was a large room on a subterranean level devoted to the Auschwitz concentration camp. As Gidon and I made our way through the exhibits in the room, a flood of animated Russian teenagers poured down the stairs like a wave of pure energy. The kids were a bit boisterous for such a solemn place, but they were on a field trip. The teacher explained to me that they were students from an international boarding school in Israel. The far end of the large room featured an imposing black map of Europe. Red, blue, and yellow circles and triangles of various sizes marked the sites of concentration camps, extermination camps, and transport centers. Big blue boxes marked the places of mass killings. 
the teens swarmed the map. Excitedly, they pointed out Odessa and Kiev, places they were familiar with. A group of teenage boys clambered over themselves, arranging themselves on the floor just below the map. They posed themselves at length, making sure each face could be seen. A friend focused his smartphone on the group. They counted to three and stuck out their tongues. I wanted to be angry at them or offended, but I couldn't. How were 21st century teenagers supposed to feel in this room with these awful images, with this overwhelming, devastating information presented in blinking lights and behind glass? How did we expect kids to react? There were troubling connections between the form and function of terrorism in World War II and the rise of intolerance and right-wing politics today. Terrorism, you might say, was among the original bits of fake news. Hitler wanted the world to believe that he had built a city for the Jews, a model camp, a Zionist experiment, a resettlement program. Such nice words used to mask such horrors. The vocabulary we use when we preserve our narratives and how and if they might be understood in the future is critical. Fake news locates the events of terrorism within the fabric of our current battle with disinformation, lies, and social media bots. Some have suggested that terrorism wasn't a real concentration camp because it lacked gas chambers. Some have even suggested the Holocaust didn't happen at all. Such lunacy is not worth entertaining. The writer in me is well aware of the semantics, concentration camp. Those two words bring to mind awful images that we've all seen in black and white. Stacks of corpses, emaciated survivors staring at the camera lens vacantly. In German, Lager means camp. The German word Vernichtung means obliteration, annihilation, destruction, extermination. Three million Jews were exterminated in these camps. It's no mistake that the word extermination was used. It's what we do to pests. The Nazis were meticulous about everything, including semantics. In the United States, the use of the words concentration camp to describe the detained immigrants on the U.S.-Mexico border has been hotly disputed as inaccurate, misleading, and even offensive. Two points of view are ostensibly in agreement with one another and yet meet in the queasy middle. Supporters of cruel, inhumane conditions on the border are offended by any allusion to the evils of Nazi Germany, so loath are they to be compared to the ultimate evil. Another point of view is that the Holocaust occupies a singular sphere of horror, and therefore there is absolutely no equivalence between a Nazi concentration camp and any other type of concentration camp. We argue about semantics, while the building burns down around us. The Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum in Poland weighed in with this statement, quote, When we look at Auschwitz, we see the end of the process. It's important to remember that the Holocaust actually did not start from gas chambers. This hatred gradually developed from words, stereotypes and prejudice, and through legal exclusion, dehumanization, and escalating violence. End quote. To paraphrase, the Holocaust didn't begin with Auschwitz and gas chambers. They're how it ended. There is hope. 
Rachel Cerati's We Share the Same Sky is a moving podcast series about Rachel's journey as she walks in the same footsteps of her grandmother, who lived in hiding in the Netherlands during World War II. Rachel is young and her voice melodic. The podcast is multi-layered and gripping. In my correspondence with Rachel, she said, quote, I think we are in a strange and, of course, unprecedented space right now with Holocaust history, anti-Semitism, Jewish identity, etc. It seems that a lot of people are talking about it, but there's less understanding of what it actually was. I had a friend, not Jewish, write me as I was releasing We Share the Same Sky, and she commented that she always thought she knew what the Holocaust was because she had heard the word so many times. But in listening to my story, she realized she actually didn't know anything about it. I found this to be profoundly honest and see it as being a truth for many people, Jews included. But this is why we do what we do. The way I told the story is resonating with people of all ages. The podcast, aside from being for the general public, is now being placed in classrooms around the country as a way to teach Holocaust history. End quote. Rachel isn't the only one doing her best to educate everyone about the realities of the Holocaust. In 2019, Israel tech executive Mati Kokavi and his daughter Maya created Eva's Instagram account, which was based on the 1944 diary of a Hungarian teenager named Eva Hyman. A normal, relatable teenager with the requisite hopes and dreams, Eva also happened to document her days in a journal, and now in the Instagram series with a smartphone as her ordinary pre-war life grew darker before it faded to black. Eva died in the Auschwitz concentration camp in October 1944. The series generated controversy. How dare the Holocaust be discussed with the use of emojis? I disagree. How shall we tell these stories when the eyewitnesses are gone? Any way that we can. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rabah, Eliran, for being the voice of young Gidon.